1: Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiecki, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiecki, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiecki. Hello, my visionary friends. Thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing evolutionary solutions to today's unique challenges. You, my treasured audience, are a very important part of this discussion. Email info at missionevolution.org with any comments or questions. We'll address them on the very next show. So take notes, sit back, and enjoy as we enter the land of co-creation. This hour we'll consider COVID-19 drug repurposing. Fall is upon us, and with it the threat of the second wave of COVID-19. At the same time, restrictions are loosening and many children are returning to school, increasing the risk of exposure to the pandemic. While the mad scramble for a viable vaccine continues and reports of reinfection rise, for the time being, immunity seems out of reach. What if, God forbid, we or our children come down with COVID 19? What are the options for treatment? Given a brand new COVID 19 cure is still unavailable, where can we turn for help? Are there existing viable options that we may be overlooking? With us this hour to explore the possibility of repurposing drugs to treat COVID-19 is Dr. David Fagenbaum. Dr. Fagenbaum is a groundbreaking physician, scientist, disease hunter, speaker, and best-selling author of the memoir, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Labeled the doctor who cured himself by New York Times, Faginbaum went from being a college quarterback to receiving his last rights while in medical school. He died nearly four more times battling Castleman's disease, a deadly cytokine storm disorder. To try to save his own life, he spearheaded an innovative approach to research through the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network, discovering a treatment that has put him into the longest remission ever. This approach is saving his life and others as well. Now he's spreading the same, spearing, spearheading the same approach to other diseases like COVID-19. His website, ChasingMyCure.com. Dr. Fadgenbaum, on behalf of my listeners and myself, thanks so much for joining us on Mission Evolution.
0: Quilda, thank you so much for having me.
1: Where did you go to medical school?
0: I went to the University of Pennsylvania.
1: And uh, you, what was your specialty at that time?
0: So I I initially decided I wanted to go to medical school. Um, While I was in college, during my sophomore year, my mom passed away from brain cancer. Mm. And that experience of watching her diagnosis, watching her valiant fight against cancer, and watching the impact her doctors had on her life and all of our lives, um, I knew that I, I had to go into medicine. And so I decided from the time I was about 19 years old that I wanted to become a doctor. And I was really laser focus. on. wanted to become a clinical oncologist. I wanted to treat cancer patients like my mom. And then just as you shared, out of nowhere, I went from being this medical student training to be a doctor to all of a sudden becoming the patient and, and everything changed.
1: I understand you went from being a quarterback in medical school to nearly dying five times. Would would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. Yeah, I was,
0: I was a quarterback at Georgetown. So in, in undergrad, my 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 lifelong dream before I got to college was it was to was to play college football and um i i, I... I uh, was fortunate enough to, to be recruited at Georgetown, um, where I played there. And, and many of your listeners may, may not realize that Georgetown has a football team. We're, we're not known for our football. We do have a team. We, we don't win very many games. But um, but it really was uh, it was a lifelong dream for me to be able to play college football. And it was, it was when I was at Georgetown in college that my mom um, became sick with cancer and that, and that my lifelong dream of becoming a college quarterback changed to now becoming my lifelong dream of wanting to take on cancer.
1: It what is It's so difficult to lose a parent at that age. Um, it just, you know, my condolences. That's that's a tough thing to get through.
0: Well, thank you. It, it really is such a tough time because, you know, you're just away from home for the first time. You're away at college. It, it is a tough time. And actually, I started an organization in memory of my mom called AMF. Uh, those were my, were my mom's initials. And it also stood for actively moving forward. And it still exists today, supporting college students grieving the illness or death of a loved one.
1: Oh, That's a beautiful way to process, isn't it? To, to serve others. It is. Yeah. So w- I understand you came down with Castleman's disease. What is that?
0: Castleman's is a rare immune system disorder. We don't even know whether to call it a cancer or an autoimmune condition because it's got features of both. But basically out of nowhere, my immune system just turned on and started attacking all of my vital organs. Your immune system is supposed to protect you, um, but unfortunately, sometimes it can turn on for unclear reasons and then cause lots and lots of harm. I experienced what's called a cytokine storm, which is basically your immune system going in overdrive. And in, in in doing so, I became so ill that, as you mentioned during the introduction, that I had my last rites read to me because the doctors didn't think I would survive. My liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, my heart and my lungs were all shutting down. and um, Mm -hmm. thankfully I, I survived I got a lot of chemotherapy that saved my life but unfortunately I would go on to have relapse after relapse after relapse
1: what is it like to experience a cytokine storm from the perspective of a patient
0: so I think there's there are a number of of feelings. one is of a fear it it's terrifying to basically have all of your organs begin to shut down um, because of something that's supposed to be good your immune system actually causing harm so it's it's really terrifying it's also really really painful um when your liver and your kidneys and your bone marrow and your heart and your lungs when they all shut down um, you experience extreme pain because the the lining around your vital organs begin to stretch and um, and it stretches so much that it just causes almost like knife-like pain all over your body. Um, and and it's also really tiring. So you can think about when you've had the worst flu or cold or, or hopefully you've never had COVID, but if you've had one of those infections, you would know kind of the fatigue that comes with having a cold or, or a flu. Um, well, a cytokine storm is like a, a thousand times the fatigue that, that you would have from, from a cold or the flu. And it's where you just feel awful. Um, the term cytokine storm has actually um, been used a lot more recently. I run a center focused on studying cytokine storms and something we've, we've been studying for a while. But, but in, uh, in light of COVID, it's become clear that a number of the most severe COVID-19 patients will experience one of these so-called cytokine storms.
1: Yeah I want I want to ask you about that because um I've heard from various scientists and medical doctors in the process of doing this special that I'm doing on COVID-19 that it's not the COVID-19 that ultimately kills the patient it's the patient's own body turning on themselves which is a cytokine storm right
0: that's exactly right when we think about um when you when you get infected with something whether it's a virus or something else we think about your immune system as being that protective defense and its job is to fight off whatever has infected you and that's exactly right that is the job of the immune system but unfortunately um if you have a little bit too strong of an immune response or even a little bit of too weak of an immune response, then, um, then things can go haywire. And so um, you almost wanna have that like perfect response where like the immune system fights the virus with the perfect amount of might and the perfect amount of energy and it puts this virus away. But if the virus causes the immune system to spiral out of control then that's when you can have as you said the cytokine storm that, that actually is what kills the most severe covid patients it's not the virus itself that kills um, the most severe patients it's actually the, the body's response and trying to kill the virus the body the immune system causes all this collateral damage
1: yeah, and it's it's inflammation related most of us uh, actually in this day and age Um, have overactive inflammation in our bodies, don't we, because of our diet and this and that.
0: There's, there's a lot of factors. You're, you're absolutely right that contribute to kind of our baseline state of inflammation. The, the immune system is supposed to be turned off um, 99% of the time. It's really only supposed to turn on when there's a virus to fight off or bacteria to fight off. That's, you know, it should be in a quiescent state or a, a kind of a state of sleep until it needs to be turned on. But you're right. There are things like diet and um, environmental exposures that can cause it to kind of be in like a low grade, kind of um, a smoldering state. State instead of being turned off and and you can imagine that being in a smoldering kind of low-grade state all the time they, that can cause problems because the immune system really isn't supposed to be turned on and, and, and causing inflammation um, and, and it's something that you know I, I've, I've learned a lot about because as I shared experiencing the cytokine storm and then eventually identifying a drug that could target my cytokine storm and save my life is, is why I'm here today I get to talk to you today because of a drug that I discovered that could actually target the cytokine storm and, and save my life.
1: And once again, true to form, you're now turning that experience around to help others.
0: I certainly am trying to. And when, when the pandemic really first began to hit the states, you'll, you'll probably remember Friday, March 13th, that Friday the 13th was the day that the, the the country started to shut down when it became clear that COVID was gonna be a serious problem. And um, I, I found myself, I was um, uh, in my car, <clears throat> Excuse me, I, I found myself thinking and hoping that some researcher somewhere would, would follow our approach to research, would follow the path of chasing my cure and, and do the same things we did for Castleman's for COVID. And then about 30 seconds later, I was like, wait a minute, why are you waiting and hoping for someone somewhere to follow your approach. This is what we've been doing for, for the last 10 years, we should do it. And so I, I reached out to my team and, um, and, and basically the, the bottom line is that we all agreed that we were going to do this. And, um, and, and so we've really been following the playbook. Um, you mentioned earlier, my book, Chasing My Cure, that's almost in a way a playbook for how do you, how do you take down a disease? How do you chase a cure? How do you, how do you save lives? And, and we've really been following that playbook um, for COVID ever since.
1: Well, that certainly gives us hope where there isn't a whole bunch of hope out there for a a short-term solution. Um, What makes a person more predisposed to experiencing the cytokine storm um, if if they indeed come down with COVID-19 or anything else like that?
0: The jury's still out on all of the factors that contribute to this, but it looks like right now there's a combination of if you have a comorbidity like diabetes or hypertension, um, that certainly puts you at risk of having one of these cytokine storms if you get infected with COVID. There are other genetic factors that have become clear. There are certain um, uh, genetic sequences or changes that that may actually make you more or less likely
1: um, the we're going family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pound i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer
0: um, to have a, a cytokine storm from from COVID 19 we're still really trying to tease it all apart because what would be great is if we could test for these things in healthy people who are not yet infected with COVID and get a really good sense for, okay, you're really likely to have a very bad uh, COVID infection, or you're really likely to have a a mild COVID infection, that could really help us with getting back to life and getting back to, you know, where we all want to be as a society. If you could really, with, with, with high accuracy, feel confident um based on someone's genetic makeup or based on their comorbidities, whether they're gonna have a, a poor or strong response. Uh, and and that still hasn't been done, but I think it's something that, that many of us are working on.
1: Well I think that's that's one of the most amazing things about COVID is the wide variety <laughs> of, of responses to the disease, from not even knowing you have it to, to yeah. death. Yeah.
0: Absolutely right. And and, you know, as of right now, it kind of feels like a a slot machine or a lottery as to whether you're going to have a good or a bad response. You don't know what to expect. It feels like you're just playing the odds. But that's where we really need to get down to exactly what genetic changes, exactly what environmental factors, what comorbidities that you have that really make you likely to have a really good or really bad response to covid and 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 many of us like i said are working on it but um, but unfortunately we don't have a very clear algorithm yet we are getting better and better at understanding when someone shows up to the hospital there are a number of blood tests. One in particular is called interleukin six. And if you measure that te- if you measure that level right when they come into the hospital, you can predict pretty well whether they're likely to have a really bad uh, hospital stay and potentially die versus a much more mild hospital stay. IL six, this interleukin six, is a really good marker of it, and that was actually. One of the reasons that I decided wholeheartedly to dive um, into studying COVID, I mentioned I run this Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, but it really was learning that interleukin-6 was very important. That that particular protein, interleukin-6, is actually the most important cytokine in Castleman disease, and actually there are drugs that were developed for Castleman disease that target interleukin-6 that have actually now been used in COVID-19, which I think is an important uh, lesson that the are gonna- dr- Oh, we're going to have to
1: get in we're gonna to have to get more into that particular treatment on the other side of a commercial break because sure. we are at the end of this segment um, but dr. Faginbaum and I will return shortly so don't you go away you're listening to mission evolution coming to you on the Exxon broadcast network wwwxedbn.net you stay right there we're going to- again, this is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. To all our faithful and thoughtful listeners, we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you. What do you think about repurposing drugs to fight COVID-19? This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled, Supporting Children Through COVID-19, LR Comments. I found this episode very helpful but I'm still really concerned about the impact of the pandemic will have on our children long term. I was wondering if you could get some more guests on the topic. Thanks, LR. We'll see who else has some helpful information on this very important topic and have them on the show as soon as possible. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org, listen to the episode entitled Supporting Children Through COVID-19, and let us know what you think. Email me at info at org and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show. With us this hour discussing repurposing drugs is Dr. David Vagenbaum. His website, com. We were just getting into a test, David, that that um, you can do at the hospital that will give a pretty good marker for where a person stands um, with the disease. Uh, would you continue with that, please?
0: Sure. Absolutely. So this particular test is called interleukin six and interleukin-6 is a cytokine. So we've talked about cytokines a few times so far today, but I I didn't really get into what they are. So cytokines are proteins or molecules that your immune system produces in an effort to fight off an infection. Um, Those same molecules, these cytokines also help the immune system to communicate with one another. And so uh, interleukin-6 is one of the most important cytokines in fighting off infections. And it's actually really, really elevated in Castleman disease. And, um, So the same test that you can do when someone shows up to the hospital with COVID that will tell you um, if someone is likely to have a very good or a very poor outcome from their COVID, um, the same test also is used in Castleman disease because there are drugs that that target interleukin-6 in Castleman. There are actually two drugs that are FDA-approved that were developed for Castleman's over the last couple of decades. And I think it's an important lesson that a lot of times people say, okay, this disease is rare. It affects 5,000 people in the U S per year. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to focus my effort on it, but this is a great example where, um, Drugs developed for this very rare condition, Castleman disease, actually are now being used in COVID and, and a number of other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and, and even as part of cancer treatments. And so this is an important lesson, And, and I and I can't talk about interleukin-6 without mentioning my good friend and colleague, Kazu Yoshizaki, who actually discovered that interleukin six was elevated in Castleman's and and he went on to develop the drug um, to target it. And And I'd heard a rumor that he had tested it on himself. He'd given it to himself to prove that it was safe before he gave it to other humans. And when I, I asked, Kazu, I said, "Kazu, I heard you gave it to yourself. He said, no, 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 I didn't give it to myself. The nurse, she gave it to me. So this amazing <laughs> researcher, he developed uh, this drug. He tested it on himself. Um, he didn't die, so he gave it to a bunch of other, other people and it went on to get approval. And I, I think I just love that story so much. And that was, certainly was, um, was a story and an experience that, that informed me and inspired me as I was on my own journey chasing my cure.
1: Is, is anxiety you know it's anxiety is an interesting thing but isn't anxiety also involved in inflammation but which comes first the inflammation or the anxiety <laughs>
0: That's a good question and I think you're right uh, there's no doubt that um, psychological state environment that we're in that those can all contribute to our immune response. We were chatting earlier about how, your immune system is really supposed to be in a in a quiet or quiescent mode um, until it has to turn on. Um, but sometimes things, uh, environmental triggers, psychological triggers can cause it to go into kind of a low grade um, situation where it's it's kind of in the in the on position when you really you want your immune system generally turned off until it needs to be turned on. So, yeah, there are a lot of factors. And unfortunately, there's a lot still to be learned about the immune system. It's uh, it's I think it's, in my opinion, it's the most fascinating system of the body, but it's also undoubtedly one of the most complicated um, organ systems.
1: I think we're really starting to recognize how everything is connected to everything else. We used to kind of compartmentalize it. Oh, well, the immune system is here and, you know, and the cardiovascular is there. But, you know, now they're saying, well, your heart has intelligence and uh, your gut has intelligence. It's really um, I love to see this opening up because don't you believe that the process of opening up this interrelatedness will crack the, the shell on a lot of things we've been unable to cure?
0: I totally agree with that. I think that um, interrelatedness is um, the the reason that I think so so little has been done in the past into this is that um, scientists like myself we study specific diseases or cell types or pathways within given disease areas and we really get very focused and that's how we make breakthroughs. But sometimes getting so focused can create silos. And I think that you're absolutely right that as a medical community, we're really starting to open up those blinders and look at the the related conditions and the overlapping conditions. And boy, is COVID a great catalyst for that. Cause I mean, COVID is a great example where it seems to affect anything and everything in your body. And I think that this is just a, COVID has been terrible in every possible way. But I do think that there are some silver linings from COVID and that I think that to your point they're helping to expose that maybe we shouldn't think about diseases as just being a lung disorder or just a heart disorder like you said but really recognize that the diseases you know affect many systems and that all these systems are, are interconnected but also I've been so impressed by the amount of data sharing that's been happening within the medical community um, data is being shared freely, people are collaborating in ways that I've never seen before and there's a real interest in drug repurposing which you mentioned a couple times so far and drug repurposing is the concept that you take a drug approved for one condition and then you try it for another condition that it's not approved for and I, I'm literally alive today because I did that. I took a drug approved for kidney transplantation and I tried it for Castleman disease and it's saving my life. And, and being someone who's, who's benefiting from, from drug repurposing and, and literally talking to you today because of it, I, I've really felt this obligation to do everything I can to look for other drugs that are already out there that could be used in new ways to save patients' lives.
1: Well, the um, uh, kidney transplant drug, wasn't that to prevent um, rejection, which is kind of calming down the immune system?
0: You're exactly right, Wilda. Yes, exactly. So that kidney transplant drug called uh, serolimus, it inhibits the immune system and inhibits a couple parts of the immune system in particular really, really well. And so in Castleman disease, uh, I did a series of experiments and understood in, in the lab that that a few aspects of my immune system seem to be in overdrive. And, um, And thankfully this drug actually targets those three aspects of the immune system really well. And so it went from, okay, this is what's going on in my immune system what drugs are already out there that can actually suppress or inhibit these things in my immune system? Even if no one's ever tried it for Castleman's, because no one had ever tried serolimus for for my disease, um, but that didn't mean that it wasn't going to work. Um, but it also didn't mean that it was going to work. Um, you know, based on the the data, we needed to actually try it.
1: So, would you go into a little bit further um, the new approach of re- repurposing drugs? How can you well, how do you narrow down which ones were the ones that be a candidate for it?
0: Sure. So there are three parallel paths you can take in drug repurposing and I I'm, I'm a big proponent of doing all three. I think in medicine and in life people like to find, you know, one way and say this is the best way to do it, but in in science I'm actually a big proponent of of taking multiple approaches and then and then understanding the limitations of each of them and trying to find, you know, what's what's truth. Um and so the three approaches one is that you can take cells from a patient, let's say it's with COVID or with Castleman disease. You take those cells And then you treat each of those cells with different drugs. And you see, how do these different drugs have different effects on on this disease? Um, And so you can test thousands of of FDA-approved drugs to see, do any of these drugs approved for something totally different maybe have an effect on cells for this particular condition? Um, Another approach is the approach that we do a little bit more of in our lab. And that's where you do really, really in-depth um, profiling of samples from patients with a given disease. So it's you've heard people talk about genomics and proteomics and transcriptomics. So it's really about doing those sort of studies to really get a good understanding for, you know, what the heck is going on in this disease? And then you say, okay, well, if I understand what's going on here, what drugs are known to either – decrease something that's too high or increase something that's too low. It's kind of like saying, okay, figure out what's going on and then figure out what what does the opposite of what's going wrong. Um, and then the third approach is to really leverage the fact that there are millions of papers and, and maybe billions or trillions of data points that have been published over the last several decades about these diseases. And so it's using artificial intelligence and machine learning to find patterns within all these data points to be able to say, you know, is, is there something in there that a human like myself couldn't find, but maybe a machine can find. And so all three of those approaches have pros and they have cons. And, and I'm a big proponent of take any of those three approaches to figure out a drug that might work and then the next step is, is it safe? And if it is safe, then then maybe it could be used safely um, in a small number of patients with that condition to see, does it seem promising? If it does seem promising, that's when you really need to move forward to, to really rigorous, randomized controlled trials. And uh, I think a big problem with the COVID uh, pandemic thus far is that um, it's really hard to interpret data from studies. If, a, if most people who get COVID actually improve. So that means that if we were to give um, 100 people um, with COVID, um, let's say we give them Skittles. We don't think Skittles are probably going to be effective in treating COVID, but we're just going to give 100 people Skittles when they're diagnosed. O- over 90 of those patients um, will actually get better. And, and you may say, oh my gosh, the Skittles just cured 90% of COVID. And so, well, maybe it wasn't the Skittles, maybe 90% we're just going to get better without any sort of treatment in the first place. Um, so it's really hard if you don't do these randomized controlled trials where you say, okay, I'm going to give, instead of giving hundred people Skittles, I'm going to give 50 of them Skittles and I'm going to give 50 of them Skittles plus some drug that we think is going to work. Um, And then you can get a sense to people that get the Skittles plus some drug, whether it's tocilizumab or something else. If that group does better than the people who got Skittles alone, um, then you say, okay, I think it's the drug that's working. It's not just the fact that a lot of people get better with COVID, regardless of what they're treated with.
1: So basically, you're triangulating information um, to narrow down all the options. Exactly. And and then
0: at the end of the day, it's also being really humble about realizing that you can triangulate all you want, but at the end of the day, the word you used is right, and that's options. And that's that these are drugs that are candidates. They may be effective, but none of us can say, okay, this drug looks really good in the lab, in my test tube. It's definitely going to save lives. It looks really good in my lab. It looks promising. Now let's be humble enough to really do the rigorous clinical trials so that way we can show whether it works or not, and also be prepared to accept if it doesn't work because um, we we don't want to spend time on drugs that are not going to be effective. We need to move those resources towards other candidates.
1: Well, it seems to me that um, the the act of repurposing drugs that have already been gone through some pretty rigorous trials for other diseases gives you a leg up because right now if they're trying to create a brand new one, they have to go through all that and then some before they can bring it to the public.
0: That's exactly right. So if you know that it's already approved for something, you know that it's it was safe enough that the FDA said it's safe enough for approval. So that's great. You know, right away you're saying, okay, it's safe enough. It's not always perfect, but at least it's safe enough. And then secondly, you know that it does something in that other condition that it's already approved for. And and you generally know pretty well how it works. And so now you've, you've got some good information about the drug. Whereas, as you said, if you're starting from scratch, you have to figure out, does it cause lots of harm? I mean, a lot of drugs have gone through clinical trials that have caused harm and actually killed patients. Um, but thankfully, those drugs never got approved. So they got kind of, you know, moved out of the line. But with a new drug, you don't know what it's going to do. You also don't always know exactly what it's going to do when you give it to people. That's why I'm so amazed by my friend, Kazu Shizaki, that I shared tested that drug on himself, was that you just don't know what it's going to do. And I think that's partly why he tested it on himself. He didn't want... The um, the onus and the, the he he was afraid of you know if it causes tremendous harm to to other people you know he would have felt awful about it. I'm not recommending that that drug development should involve scientists testing drugs on themselves. I think that's you know better left to comic books. But um, but I think this is an example where um, where he, he's just you know in, in, inspirational to me that he was willing to take that sort of a step.
1: Yeah, beautiful man of service. That's that that is amazing. Um, so. Uh, We're just about out of time in this segment, but when we pick up on the other side, I'd like to discuss, you know, we're in a big hurry. Um, Are we likely to run the risk of making mistakes because we're under so much pressure and a big hurry and how to prevent those mistakes? You game?
0: Sounds good.
1: (laughs) All right. But it is time for a quick pause. Dr. Fagenbaum and I will return to our discussion shortly, so you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution. We're coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire leading-edge, information-packed past episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. Our guest this hour is Dr. David Fagenbaum. We're speaking about Castleman's disease, cytokine storms, and COVID-19. His website, ChasingMyCure.com. Um, Dr. Fagenbaum, we were just about to go into all the pressure that the scientists are under to find a cure because let's face it, everything's been shut down. Things aren't going well because we don't have one, a cure or a prevention for COVID-19. So, but does that have us running the risk of, uh, making mistakes and pushing through something prematurely that really isn't safe?
0: It does. Um, I think that, uh, many of us that either perform science or that are part of the scientific community or or patients um i think that many of us feel like things typically move too slowly and that i think we're always looking for how can we speed things up Um, but you're right right now i think the feeling is that it feels like things are maybe moving a little too quickly um, which if you asked me could things move too quickly i I'd, i'd probably would have told you no about a year ago because I didn't think that there was a too quick. I thought that it was only too slow. But I think you're right. I think we have seen with COVID, there have been some silver linings, like I said, people sharing data in new ways, collaborating more than ever, repurposing drugs. There's an urgency that I think is healthy and good. Um, but you're right. Sometimes it can become too too much of an urgency. And, and maybe um, we make maybe make mistakes. I think that you know a number of the trials that have been published typically would have been Probably rather than two or three weeks after a study's done, we'd be talking maybe one to two years after the study's done. It would be typically the time frame for when um, these studies would get published, and and during those one to two years, there would be a lot of people that would look at the data and in many ways to make sure that the results were how we we all you know would would interpret them. So we're at risk for sure, um, and I think that. Though we're at risk of moving too quickly, we have to find that right balance. We're moving fast enough, but we're also following the really important principles of science, and that's that um, you're always looking to disprove um, something that that you're looking for. You're not trying to prove that something works; you're trying to disprove, to show that it doesn't work, to really um, to be rigorous in saying that you know my bias is that it won't work. Let's try to uh, let's try to make sure to prove that it actually does.
1: So that's kind of a reverse way of dealing with the um, observer syndrome, isn't it?
0: That's right. I mean, there's observer syndrome, there's confirmation bias, where people like myself, I mean, we researchers, we all want solutions. I mean, we all want drugs to save COVID patients' lives yesterday. None of us want this to take any longer than it has. And so we have to realize that we're biased towards wanting to see something that may not be there. And, and if it's a drug that we identified in our lab, we're gonna have an even stronger confirmation bias because as hard as we try, we're gonna want it to work maybe even more um, than if it wasn't in it from our lab. So we have to try even harder to make sure that we're really having a high burden of proof that's required to prove that something actually works or doesn't and it's, um, it's tough because I think we all, we all want things so quickly.
1: Well, lives are on the line. So it's no wonder we're in a bit of a hurry. You're Um, right.
0: But, you know, I would say, to the reverse of that is that, you know, there there have always been lives in the line for so many diseases. In fact... um, you may know these numbers already, but there are over 7000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans and, and almost all of them don't have a single approved drug. And so there's always been that urgency. Live, there, Well, there's always been lives on the line for all of these diseases, um, but there hasn't always been the urgency. And I think we have to kind of figure out that balance. You know, why up until covid? have things been moving you know relatively slowly and now with covid they, they're moving at lightning speed i think it's too fast now but i think it was too slow before so we got to find that right middle ground
1: yeah middle ground is the key i have changed gears a little bit i understand that you're in remission now would you mind sharing what your journey was like from almost dying to the active functional doctor that you are today <laughs> sure
0: um, so as as you shared earlier i went from being this healthy medical student to Um, nearly dying in the intensive care unit. I I actually nearly died three times over a six-month period and required chemotherapy to save my life. So um, when you don't know what to target in the immune system, if you give someone really high dose chemotherapy, it'll actually wipe out the whole immune system. So we did that and that saved my life multiple times. Um, and then I was actually started on an experimental drug, a drug that was inspired by Kazu Shizaki's research. And um, I hope that drug was gonna keep me in remission. I was able to go back to medical school. I finished my third year of med school. And then out of nowhere, I relapsed on this drug. So now. Here I was relapsing on the only drug in development for my disease, and I was completely out of options. My my doctor explained to me that there were no more drugs in development. There were no more promising leads. There were no researchers doing promising work. I mean, it, I was out. I, I was out of options. And so I turned to my dad and my sisters and, and, and my girlfriend at the time, and I promised them that I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to find a drug that could save my life and other patients with my disease. And so... I set out on this journey. I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. I started conducting research in the lab and I was making progress. But about a year later, I relapsed again. And, and again, I was I was out of time. And, and I realized that, that I just didn't get it done fast enough. As hard as I' tried for that year, I just I didn't I didn't do it quick enough um, because I didn't think I would survive. But thankfully, for the fifth time, I survived one of these deadly episodes thanks to chemotherapy. Um, and now I knew that I was I, I was just so fortunate to make it through that. I had to find something, some drug that could help me. and that's what set me on this path to find the drug serolimus, where I performed a series of experiments that led me to figure out, what seemed to be wrong in my immune system. And then I started searching, well, what drugs already exist that can maybe turn that around, that can either decrease the things that are that are too high or increase the things that are too low. And I, I came across this drug, serolimus and it had never been used for Castleman's, and I was completely out of options. And my girlfriend at the time, Caitlin and I, we were engaged to get married, and I, I so badly wanted to make it to our wedding day of May 24th, 2014 and I really was willing to, willing to do anything. And that's, um, that's when I started testing this drug, serolimus on myself. And, um, you know, I never, I never thought that I was going to make it to our wedding day. I just, I just knew I had to try and I made it to May 24th, 2014. And, and all of a sudden I made it to May 25th, 2014. And, um, And as the time has gone on, it's now been over six and a half years that I've been in remission. I'm just so thankful for every moment and and really just felt like I had to share this story and this message of hope with the world. And that's why I wrote Chasing My Cure, because I just feel like I've learned so much about life, so many lessons from this journey about fighting back, hope, resilience, that I just felt like I had to
1: share with the world. Mm -hmm. I'm sure glad you are. Now, how can a person tell... If they are indeed um, running kind of um, inflammation in their system as a as a matter of course, um, you know, like they're always in a state of inflammation, so that the, we can kind of start getting a feeling. Well, we might be a little higher risk than yep. the guy next to us. How how can you tell?
0: There's one lab test that's pretty good for distinguishing this. It's called C-reactive protein. And basically, C-reactive protein, it's produced by cells in your liver in, whenever there's any sort of inflammation. So if your body is inflammation, then your liver cells are going to make C-reactive protein. And so if you test the blood and you say, oh, wow, C-reactive protein's up, there is inflammation going on. Um, so it's actually been used for, I'd say, over a decade now because it turns out you just, earlier on you you hit the nail on the head. You talked about how cardiovascular disease is linked to the immune system and actually there are a number of studies that prove that if your CRP is elevated because you have inflammation you are at increased risk of having a heart attack and so this is a great example where you test the levels of inflammation and then if the levels of inflammation are high you get a sense for okay you are at increased risk of a heart attack or as you know many other conditions that are also associated with inflammation so CRP is the best way to to
1: measure that. How about just symptoms that a person, you know, everybody's not going to run out and get a CRP. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. Not or, or not we would overwhelm that. everybody, right? Yep. So, how? What are the symptoms? Just as you know, observing ourselves that we can notice that might indicate. Well, we better go get that test.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it's really hard because you know things that are that are symptoms of inflammation are also symptoms of a lot of other things. And so a little bit of low-grade fatigue would be something that would tell you that maybe there's some inflammation. Um, uh, If you can actually see the area of inflammation, you'll see some redness there. Um, But as you know, most of our body is not visible, right? And so if you have inflammation in your body, you probably can't see the redness associated with it. And so um, it's hard. I I think that it's, um, you know, are you feeling different than you used to feel and um, certainly, if you're worried that you have COVID, the things that you need to be looking out for um, are a, a change in sense of smell or taste, um, a cough that's often associated with it, certainly fever, um, shortness of breath. These are the kinds of things that you should really be looking out for. But in, in the absence of COVID, it's really hard to put your to really nail down on like this is the thing um, that should get you, you know looking for more information.
1: Got it. Got it. I understand the Food and Drug Administration just issued an emergency use authorization for convalescent convalescent plasma to treat COVID-19. What is convalescent plasma?
0: Yeah, good question. So plasma, everyone's got plasma. Plasma is basically the watery, proteinaceous part of our blood. So if you, if you take, you know, draw some blood from you. You'll have a bunch of red blood cells, that's what makes it look red. You'll have a bunch of white blood cells in there, that's what protects you, that's your immune system. And then the rest of the stuff in your blood is a combination of water and proteins and a bunch of other molecules that are in, so that's your plasma. It's, it's It's the stuff in your blood minus the cells. And so now, probably one of the most important aspects of your plasma are all of the antibodies that are built up in your plasma. So your your body, when you when you encounter a virus, you'll start making antibodies against that virus, and that's why you'll eventually um, control and kill the virus, and and you'll eventually have immunity against it when you encounter it again in the future. That's the concept of immunity due to antibodies. Now, um, if you've encountered COVID you have undoubtedly made antibodies against the covid virus because if it's convalescent meaning means that you're better you're now feeling better so you were sick with covid you're in a convalescent uh, you know you're feeling better state which means that the covid the virus SARS-CoV-2 was controlled and now um, you should have high levels of antibodies so the idea is that now you take plasma from someone who just fought off covid which has all of their antibodies in it, and you give it to someone new Um, And now they have antibodies against COVID, which is awesome, um, because that's going to help them to fight the virus. However, it's a lot more complicated than just that. And that's because your antibodies only last in your blood for a certain period of time. So if you get antibodies from someone else, those antibodies are only going to help in the short term, maybe in the next few days to weeks. Um, So it's not like we could just give antibodies and convalescent plasma to everyone and that's gonna prevent us from getting sick. You have to keep giving it to people um, if you wanna use it in a preventive state, Um, but you definitely need to give it um, uh, to folks um, uh, in the midst of active disease to expect that it would work. However, what's also become clear is, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, there are people that actually are fighting the virus pretty well, um, but it's their immune system that causes all kinds of other problems that lead to them dying. So, so that person who's really sick in ICU with COVID, they may actually already have plenty of antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. Um, the problem isn't that they didn't have antibodies. The problem is that their immune system is out of control. And so, so those, the convalescent plasma likely wouldn't be effective for those people.
1: And do they have a way of knowing if it's going to be effective or not?
0: You know, right now, there's some some okay data to suggest that if you if you get your antibody levels, if let's say you've newly been infected with COVID, and you get your antibody levels tested for COVID, and you find out that you've got low antibody levels, those people are more likely to benefit from getting convalescent plasma from someone else who has high antibody levels. Because if you give someone who's got low antibodies to someone with low antibodies, it's not much of an effect and if you give it a, if you have someone who already has high antibody levels then giving them more antibodies is is probably not going to be effective but if you take someone who's newly infected with covid They've got low antibody levels against it, and then you take blood from someone who's got high antibody levels and you give it to them. Those are the people who seem most likely to benefit, Um, and that was shown in a kind of a sub-analysis of a sub-analysis, which led to that um, emergency compassionate use or emergency um, approval, Um, but more work is going to be needed to really prove that out.
1: Well, it strikes me, and we're about out of time for this segment, but it strikes me it's very similar to a nursing mother passing on her antibodies, but like two days after she quits nursing, the child can come down with all of that stuff.
0: Exactly. That's a really that's a really, really good analogy. I need to start using that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're welcome to it. It Thank is you. time for that for that commercial break. Dr. Fagenbaum and I will be back shortly to continue our discussion, so don't go away. This is Mission Evolution on the Exome Broadcast Network, ww.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing, gifted, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or guest that you think would be of interest, email us at info at And speaking of gifted people of service to the world, this hour we're sharing thoughts with Dr. David Fagenbaum. His website, chasingmycure.com. Um, David, we were talking about uh, all the different ways that you know that plasma might help, but it really doesn't. <laughs> that you know, it's never so simple, is it? Everybody is so so different. That and we're really seeing this with COVID. Is everybody is so different, and their responses are so different, and their history is so different that one thing might work and one thing might not. How are we going to weed our way through this <laughs> to uh, find a way of treatment?
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think that all of us want it to be simple. There's one drug that works for everyone and that would be amazing. Um, but thus far, it hasn't seemed to be that simple. And so I think that we need to keep doing these trials. We need to keep getting a sense for who does it work in, you know, who doesn't it work in, who does it work in, and then really get to, to where we can do tests on people before we give them a drug and we can say, okay, based on the result of this test, you're more or less likely to benefit from this drug. And um, and ideally we'll get to a stage where there's multiple, you know, many drugs that are effective, um, likely at different stages of COVID. So we've already seen with the drug called dexamethasone, which is a corticosteroid, that it's really, really effective if you give it to people who are quite sick. So if you give it to someone who's in the ICU or they're very sick in the hospital, um, there's a major reduction in mortality in those people. But if you give the same drug to people who are not yet in the ICU, who are not yet receiving oxygen therapy, it's actually harmful for them. There's a worse overall um, outcome for people who are in their early stages. And that just highlights that not only does it seem to be complicated on a patient-to-patient basis, like you said, some people get better with this, some people get better than that. This is even within the same patient, depending on the timing that you give the drug within that same patient, you're going to have different responses. And so it just highlights that this is a complicated disease, and we're going to need to continue to understand, okay, this drug may not work for these people, but maybe it works for those people, and we really need to nail down the right drugs for each of those people.
1: You know, it's... I I was wondering, is indeed this one of the most complex uh, diseases we've been confronted with lately?
0: I think that I would say it's definitely up there as one of the most complex diseases. I think that um, part of what's so difficult about it is that that we want answers so quickly. So there is an incredible amount of work being done, but there's still so many unknowns. I mean, I think that for diseases that have been around for a long time that are really complex. I mean, I think that we would all agree that HIV is very complex. That's why there's no vaccine, even though we've been working on vaccines for decades. So it's a very complex virus. But um, but SARS-CoV-2 is complex in, in so many ways. As you mentioned earlier, there's all these people who have asymptomatic infections. I mean, some people they don't even know that they got SARS CoV two and other people they're they're dying in the intensive care unit. And and that really is kind of mind boggling, isn't it?
1: It is. And and I think it also adds to the confusion that the masses are suffering from right now. Because um, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there mm-hmm. of oh, it's all, you know, eh, conspiracy theories and everything else. But I think that this uncertainty and this this mixed bag of of responses that we're getting from different people, is really playing into that, don't you?
0: Oh, I totally agree with you. I think that if everyone uniformly had the exact same response, then that would mean that everyone's friend would have had a similar experience or everyone's aunt or uncle who's had COVID would have a similar, and we would all be on the same page. But you're right, some people are having really bad, and the people who are having really bad responses, their family members are terrified of COVID. And then the people where they're having, you know, a mild or asymptomatic case, their family members are like, hey, what's all the fuss about? And I think that we were talking earlier about the whole confirmation bias. I think that, you know, what we've seen in one case now becomes all the cases we have ever seen. And that's that informs how we think about this virus when we really should recognize that there have been two million deaths around the world from this virus. And and there have been many more people who've gotten and have not died. And so... um, i think we just i think humility is is an important uh characteristic in saying that we just don't know and we can't really rush to judgment one way or another yet
1: how much does the uh, go back to anxiety and fear how much does that make, make us more susceptible to to having a worse case of it
0: i think that there's two things with anxiety so um anxiety is never a good thing. Um, it's always better for us to be in a good state of mental health. However, if being anxious about the virus means that you're going to follow precautions like social distancing and mask wearing and hand washing, um, then it may be that that anxiety is what saves your life. Um, at the same time, um, Being anxious and having anxiety is not a good thing and it's not something that that I would recommend or that I'm saying, you know, people should be anxious. I'm not saying that at all. But um, I think it's about finding that balance where you respect viruses like this and you recognize that it is a slot machine. We don't know how any one of us is going to respond to this virus. We may have good data to suggest that some of us are going to do better than others. But it's being—it's about being humble uh, that, that we don't really know. But it's also about having a healthy, healthy dose of um, of awareness. Maybe not anxiousness, but awareness that we need to need to be careful.
1: Well, when you when you go into anxiety, um, you go into the back brain, and you're in fight or flight. There's mm-hmm. no logic or decision making there. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, you know knee jerk reactions versus, like you're recommending, um, recognize the potential and take the logical choices. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, how can we stump tell find that balance between <laughs> not responding at all or going into fight or flight versus just being logical and taking the logical steps?
0: You know, I don't know the right answer. I think that I've always thought education is the way to get to that, but I've realized throughout this pandemic that, um, that, that ed- I still think education is so important, but I've realized during the pandemic that, that, two people can hear the exact same words and come up with totally different interpretations. And I guess I've always known that. Um, but it's hard because, um, uh, because there are sometimes very clear messages that are misunderstood and sometimes there are very unclear messages that seem to be better understood. So I think it's really tough, but, um, we as a society need to recognize that we don't know everything and, and we need to be humble enough to realize we don't know everything. Um, but also, uh, Recognize that, that more work needs to be done and that to try our best to follow recommendations that are made, but also kind of cut those people making recommendations slack and realizing that they're not they're not going to be right 100% of the time. Um, but, but you know, we're all just doing the best we can.
1: Boy, isn't that the truth? We're all doing the best that we can in a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. How do you see the challenges of these times impacting the future of medicine?
0: I th- I see them there's a few that I'm certain are going to affect medicine. One is telemedicine. I think that moving forward, there are going to be a lot more capabilities to see your doctor from the comfort of your own home. We've proven we can do it um, because many hospitals um, ramped up telemedicine really quickly. I think that we also are going to see a lot more data sharing and collaboration because again, we've proven that researchers can share data. We just need to have the right structures and the right urgency in place. Um, I think the third piece is around drug repurposing, that we really, um, we've shown that we can really quickly mobilize drugs that were developed. 50 years ago for something else and to show whether they work for, for COVID or not, why aren't we doing that for all the other conditions that are waiting for solutions? And so uh, I think that there's going to be some positives. There obviously are way more negatives, you know, the lives lost, the anxiety you mentioned, the suffering that people have gone through, the grief that people are going through, grieving um, the loss of a loved one when you couldn't be with them, um, their final days. I mean, that's just heartbreaking. Um, From my experiences, when I've, I've spent months now um, hospitalized in intensive care units. and And I frankly don't think I would have survived if I didn't have my dad, my sisters, and Caitlin um by my side. So I can't imagine what it's like to go through an illness like this, a cytokine storm like this, and to not have the people you love by your side. it's It's just devastating, but all I can hope is that some positives, some silver linings will come from this um so that we can, you know, help people moving forward.
1: I think that we're grieving. So much. I mean, even those of us that haven't lost somebody to COVID, we're grieving our whole way of life because Mm -hmm. everybody says, oh, let's get back to normal. I can't wait till we get back to normal. This This is a game changer, don't you think?
0: Oh, yeah. I think that I think we wish so badly we, everything would return to normal. But but I think you're right. I think it's a game changer in that it's just going to really change how we live. And and maybe maybe there is a time when we get back to normal five or 10 years from now. Who, who knows? And when I say get back to normal, I, I don't mean it's going to be five to 10 years before we're back to a semblance of normalcy. Um, but I'm just saying, like, to, to get totally back to the way things were, it could be a really long time. And and I, And we're all hopeful that in the short term, we'll start getting closer and closer to the, to the pre-COVID normal. Mm.
1: But also, we're, we're just about out of time for our time together. Um, and I don't want to end on a negative note, but I think we're just starting to see the ramifications long-term on patients from COVID. That is, it There's long-term ramifications. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, there's this new syndrome that all of us are talking about called the, the COVID long haulers. And so these are people who They got infected with COVID, they were sick with COVID, and then they got better. But for some reason, their symptoms never fully went away. And now, three months later, they're still in a brain fog, or they're having joint pain, or they're just feeling unwell months later. And so uh, that's something I really worry about is this kind of long-term, long-hauler syndrome um, and what it's going to do to people. So uh, l- let's all hope that it's not going to be as bad as many of us fear. Um, and and I think that you know, listeners should feel comfort knowing that they're is so much work being done um, in the medical field. I mean, there are colleagues of mine who are cardiovascular disease researchers who had never, ever studied the immune system before that have turned their time, their effort, their energy, their intelligence at fighting COVID. And so, um, my lab, where we've been studying related cytokine storm disorders, we're, we're full speed ahead after COVID. So, I hope listeners know um, that, that there is an incredible large group of people that are working really hard on COVID, um, and we're doing everything we can, and we're already seeing the fruits of that labor. There are drugs that are already being revealed to be effective. There are more coming down the pipeline, um, and we're just going to keep everything, keep doing everything we can to keep chasing cures for COVID.
1: Oh, we're so grateful you guys are out there in the trenches. <laughs> you, you know, you're the ones that are going to find find the solution to that part of it. That's a fact.
0: Well, thanks you for know, helping to elevate um, the, the work that we're doing and helping to spread the word about the work we're doing and also about my journey, Chasing My Care.
1: Oh, what a beautiful story it is. In, in closing, would you like to share with Mission Evolution's worldwide audience, what will help us evolve through this crisis?
0: I think it's around... Um, the, the number one thing I would say is that we need to turn our hope into action. And, and when I say that, that's the subtitle of my book because many of us hope for a lot of things in our day. We hope for health and well being and prosperity. Um, and many of us take action to get us closer to that which we're hoping for. But sometimes with things like COVID, we can feel like it's totally out of our control. And so I may be hoping that COVID end soon and that it doesn't have a big impact, but I'm not actually going to do anything about it. And I think all of us should realize that we have the power to social distance, to hand wash, to to put on a mask, to do the things that we can to take action. So that thing that we're hoping for, which is that COVID will be out of here soon, will be closer to reality. And I I think that it's bigger than COVID. I think for your listeners, it's about turning hope into action and saying, if I'm hoping for something, what can I do to make that hope a reality?
1: Isn't isn't that a beautiful message? Because it seems like we feel so victimized by this, we just sit on our hands and worry. And yet, you know, I'm not a medical person, but I can do my part in doing what I do with my show to share the message. You are a medical person and you're in the trenches working it. But each of us has an option to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. I totally agree. Well, I'm sorry we are out of time. I could go on and on with you. Doctor Fagenbaum, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Golda. It's been a real pleasure. Our guest this hour has been the author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, Dr. David Fagenbaum. Labeled the doctor who cured himself by New York Times, Dr. Fagenbaum is a groundbreaking physician, scientist, disease hunter, speaker, and best-selling author. His website, where you can find out more about him, is ChasingMyCure.com. Remember, our entire information-packed past episode collection is available for listen or download free of charge. Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xedbn.net. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing you information, resources, and support to a tumultuously evolving world.